Uh, turn to Romans 4. This is week four of a, a five-week series on the, the five, what we call the five solas of the Reformation. Before I um, start, um, my wife and I, we had our, we, we used our pastor appreciation gift. We went away for our night away together and, um, you know, of course we both got sick like the day that we were supposed to leave, naturally. Um, I thought it was going to be my kids, but it was a little change of pace and it was me instead and, and um, we still had a really nice time. Uh, and I want to thank you for that. But more than anything else, I want to thank you for the words that you wrote for us and you said to us. You know, um, I, I keep those things for a long time. I told my wife uh, when we were talking on, on Friday night, I was just like, some part of me wonders when they're going to realize, like, um, like the lights are going to come on and they're going to be like, oh my gosh, why, why were we so nice to this guy? Um, still feel like that, that I'm, I'm a fraud who's bound to be exposed one time or another. And you've just, um, that's how well you've loved me and my family, uh, is that you make me afraid of being found out. So thank you, I think. Okay, uh, Romans 4. We're going to read most of this chapter, not all of it. It'll be on the screen for you. What then shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. But what does scripture, for what does the Scripture say? Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. Starting again at 13. For the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be heir of the world did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. For if it is the adherents of the law who are to be the heirs, faith is null and the promise is void. For the law brings wrath, but where there is no law, there is no transgression. That is why it depends on faith. In order that the promise may rest on grace, and be guaranteed to all his offspring, not only to the adherents of the law, but also to the one who shares the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. As it is written, I have made you the father of many nations. In the presence of the God in whom he believed, who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. In hope, he believed against hope, that he should become the father of many nations, as he had been told, so shall your offspring be. He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead since he was about 100 years old, or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. No unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he promised. 
That is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. But the words it was counted to him was not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in him, who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. Let me pray for us. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you have made us right, that you have made us right by your own work. And God, we pray this morning that that right-making would be revealed, would break on our hearts again. God, we pray that you would take preeminence in our understanding of how you save us, of the way that you save us. Father, we pray that you would bring us spiritual humility, that our, our knees would hit the ground, that our hands would be open, and we would see you as the one who is the author of our salvation from first to last. And in so doing, we are a blessed people. Make much of yourself, Lord Jesus, and heal us of all our delusions. Amen. This uh, fourth sola, as it were, is faith alone. It's been talked about the doctrine of justification of, by faith alone is the article upon which the the church stands. It is the summary of all Christian doctrine. Martin Luther pointed to this as his primary concern, as the key that unlocks his own heart in regards to all of these things that he helped to, to write and to generate momentum behind. It was this doctrine that set his heart free. Martin Luther was a a monk. Um, He disappointed his father. Uh, He didn't go into law as his father had hoped. Um, So if you too have disappointed your father with your career choice, don't worry, you're in good company. Martin Luther disappointed his dad and became a monk. But Martin Luther was a sort of obsessive person. And unfortunately, Martin Luther's obsession was his own moral purity. And he could not, could not, could not feel good enough. He could not feel pure enough. He was pursuing his doctorate in Bible of all the guys who should feel like they know exactly what is required of them to be right before God. Martin Luther should be the guy And Martin Luther would spend lots and lots of time with his confessor. If you didn't know, in the Roman Catholic tradition, um, there is, they'd consider a sacrament of confession where you go and sit with a a priest. Um, And for Martin Luther, it would have been a fellow monk that you go over your sins with them. And they can give you a prescription of, of repair and remediation for what you've done and they can proclaim to you the forgiveness of God. And he would go sit with his confessor again and again and again to go over all of his most recent sins, which in the eyes of his confessor were ludicrously small. Ultimately, his confessor said, look, leave me alone. Come back when you've murdered someone, then we can do this over again. 
Martin Luther was obsessed with finding the grains of sin. That was how his confessor saw it. But in Martin Luther's mind, he was so plagued by the weight of the immensity of his sin that when the first time came that he was uh, able to oversee the Mass as a priest, he was overcome with fear. How could I be worthy to oversee the institution of the Lord's Supper? Martin Luther was overwhelmed by the sight of his sin. In the beginning of the book of Romans, though, as he was moving through this study, Romans 1, he came across what is probably the thesis statement. It is the central organizing thought of the book of Romans in Romans 1, 16 and 17. It says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. And Luther keyed in on these last words in Romans 17. The righteous shall live by faith. This quote that Paul pulls from the book of Habakkuk. And for the first time, what he saw was that the righteous ones were deemed righteous not by their righteous behavior, but by faith and faith alone. And Luther describes this understanding as like the lights coming on. He says like like his heart had been trapped in a cage and for the first time he felt like the gospel came in and unlocked his heart and set him free. Because it was this, the righteous shall live by faith that freed Luther from the weight of the immensity of his sin because he saw that he was never meant to be the one who resolved that weight. We, we read from Romans 4. And Paul discusses the nature of being made right before God. That's this word justification. You maybe are more familiar with the word just, if things are just or unjust. That's ba- basically being right, being made right. Justification is being made right. And Paul is discussing how it makes sense. <clears throat> how were we to anticipate that God wanted people to be made right, not by doing right things, but by this thing, faith. And what he does is he pulls from Israel's story and he pulls Abraham out as this icon of faith. He says the way that you should understand how this works is to understand Abraham and his story. Abraham lives in this time in the Old Testament where there was no law. If you'd have never taken any sort of Old Testament class, let me tell you, the Ten Commandments come in the book of Exodus. Well, Abraham lives in the time of Genesis, which is before Exodus. It's natural for us to think 
that the way that you become a good and righteous person, the way that you can be made right is to do right things. But what Paul is saying is, no, Abraham lived before he had the roadmap for doing the right things. He lived before the law. But there's in the story of Genesis this indication that God counts him as a right person, as somebody who has been made right. And what Paul points out is it's not that, Paul, that Abraham has done a bunch of good things. It's this specific moment from Genesis 15. And it's just a few verses, so let me read it to you. In Genesis 12, God tells Abraham, I'm going to do this huge thing for you. I'm going to give you this huge inheritance. I'm going to give you a bunch of of descendants. The whole world will be blessed through you. The problem is Abraham is old. And time only passes further between Genesis 12 and 15. He has no children. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram. I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. But Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. This is his butler, basically. He's a butler. The, The closest thing I have to a child is this guy who takes care of my stuff for me. And Abram said, Behold, you've given me no offspring, and a member of my household, my staff, will be my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him. This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, Look toward heaven and number the stars if you're able to number them. Then he said, So shall your offspring be. And he believed the Lord, and he counted it to him as righteousness. This is the story that Paul is referencing in Romans 4. This is the moment where God brings Abram outside, shows him the stars, and says, I'm going to make your descendants like this. And in this moment, what Abram's response is, is to trust that God will do what he says he will do. And God counts that to him as being one who has been made right. Now, this is important Because I think even today, if you grew up in church, if you grew up in Protestant churches who emphasize this whole faith alone thing, if you grew up going to Bible study classes, it is really easy to misunderstand and miss what is the heart of biblical faith. And I think that the mistakes come in two different fashions. One way to misunderstand faith is Faith is knowing the right things. If I know the right things, if I know the right amount of the right things, that is biblical faith. Knowing the right things is part of biblical faith, but it is not the heart of biblical faith. There was not in Genesis 15 a moment where God gave Abram a list of facts and Abram said, now I know these things. Now I have faith. And God said, boom, you're righteous. In fact, Scripture will say, James will say, that there, even the demons know the right things. 
Even demons know the truth about Jesus, the truth about God. Demons know the right things. Knowing the right things is not equal to what biblical faith is. But it is easier for us to believe that knowing the long enough list of right things is the sum total of what biblical faith is. Because we can work on that. We can read more books. We can listen to more podcasts. We can build our faith. When really what we mean is build our knowledge base. That is not faith. Now, the other mistake we can make in reaction to that is faith is not knowing the right things. It is feeling the right things. And we put really Christian language on this. That I, I, I can feel conviction enough. I can feel my way in the right direction. You see this often with people who are, who are trying to uh, pray or believe in faith for somebody to be healed. I grew up in, in church tradition where that was a major thing, was believing uh, in healing prayer for people and expecting that God would do that. But the, the question was always like, am I, is there like a muscle that I'm not tensing enough? Like, am I not, is there some part of me inside of me that I'm not really tapping enough to really feel that faith, like an energy that I need to like shoot out of me somehow? And faith becomes this sort of quasi-spiritual, cloudy, fuzzy language that we mean feeling the right things, feeling sure enough. But that's, that's not really what's on the other end of this thing either. I can't really just be feeling. When I was in seminary, and, and it's one of my Greek classes, the instructor was talking about this word faith. And he was trying to show us how the language correspondent from, from Greek to, to English is it's gotten sort of bogged down at times just by these categories. And he said that the simplest way that I can explain to you what they're trying to say when they use this Greek word is in English, it's better understood as trust. Personal, relational trust. Now, if you think about it, personal and relational trust has both of these components, knowing the right things and feeling the right thing. So we're not, not saying that neither of those things matter. Like, you should know a person to some degree before you trust them fully. And you should know things about people that you trust. So, I know a lot of things about my wife. And my, my knowledge of her has grown even as trust has grown. So it is important that you know more things. But, I've read biographies of people detailed biography, biographies of people. 
and I know lots of things about them, and I do not trust them at all because, well, they may be dead, for one, but two, I don't know them. I know things about them. And yes, there is some emotional aspect to trust as well. There's some form of emotional knowledge that goes with trust. I don't have that sort of emotional connection with the people about whose biographies I've read. But with my wife, I do. Abraham's faith, the faith that Paul is pointing us towards is this icon of faith, is a kind of faith that is really anchored in a God that he knows and trusts. But notice what he doesn't know. He's still in this passage in Genesis 15. No idea how any of this is going to happen. He has no idea. He does not know how God is going to do what he's go- he said he's going to do. Notice that it's not that God has exhaustively explained everything to him. And this is good news for those of us who wrestle with faith. We we tend to believe that if there are too many questions that we answer, I don't know to, we are exceeding the boundaries of faith. We can't possibly be people that are counted as having faith. Because we answer, I don't know, to a lot of questions. Hebrews 11 will list a long list of people who have faith. And one of the explicit portions of Hebrews 11 is, these people never saw the fulfillment of the promises. These people did not know exactly what they were aiming towards or how it would be manifested. So if you are in the place in your life where you are plagued by how much you don't know, if you feel like faith is this impossibly unbearable long list of facts or impossibly unbearable concrete definitive feeling that you just can't quite get to, then you are misunderstanding the nature of biblical faith. And the problem is what's quietly and subtly happen is you've probably wandered in to making faith all about you. If I can make myself feel sure enough, if I can make myself know enough things, then I have stumbled upon biblical faith. But that is the exact opposite of what God wants you to do and understanding what He's like and obtaining what He has for you in biblical salvation. Because what Paul is saying is everything is all about God. In Ephesians 2, in the passage that we read last week, when we talked about grace alone, he says, this is not about your works. Everything is a gift. It's all gift. And if you have stumbled upon some portion of your faith journey where you are feeling like, ah, I've got to really meet my end of the bargain, there is no bargain. There is no portion of salvation 
that it is about you being good enough or you having a long enough list of facts or you feeling sure enough. Everything hinges on God and God alone. And this is what Abram, this is what he got. Everything, if every, anything was going to happen for him, the way of the promises being fulfilled, everything hinged on God doing what he said he would. And Abram trusted that. This is what Paul is getting at towards the end of Romans 4. No unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he promised. Fully convinced that God was able to do what he promised. This is the heart of biblical faith. Are you convinced that God is able to do what He had promised? This is the simple heart of the matter. This to me is such a relief. Because I, I am by nature a skeptical person. I myself am constantly running in the back of my head it feels like all the time through piles and piles of doubt I'm, I'm constantly in the back of my mind or with other people why why is there evil in the world do I really believe this thing that I, I literally stand up and preach? This thing that I've given my life to? Do I really believe that it is real? When, when, I, when I tell people that they are not just their body and that when they die, some part of them will live on and live with God, so that thing I cannot see at all. Do I really believe that that is true? And it feels at times that doubt can pile up all around me and it's just emotionally troubling and I can work through these rational arguments I can talk myself down, but when it comes right down to it, the question is, do I trust God? Am I fully convinced that He can do what He's promised. And that, for me, is an unshakable yes. I have a hard time with a million things about being a Christian. There, there are 100,000 difficult things that I feel varying levels of certainty about. There are things that I have varying levels of logical and rational proofs about, but what it comes down to is, have you met Jesus and do you trust Him to do what He has said? This is the thing that I am fully convinced by. 
that Jesus is who He says He is. And that somehow, someway, He will do exactly what He's promised. This is the thing that set Martin Luther free. That it wasn't that he had to do all of the right things, believe all of the right things, feel all the right things. It was that God was strong enough to bear the weight of all of his sin and that somehow God would do, do what he said he would do and make Martin Luther right. And this is what is on offer towards you. You may not understand everything. You may not be able to feel certain enough about everything. But when you see Jesus, the question is, are you fully convinced that He can do what He says He will do? And if that answer is yes, then you are right. You have been made right before God. You can say, well, I don't know. Today I might feel it doesn't matter. You may feel like, oh, I don't know if I know all the... It doesn't matter. You have been made right before God because God can and will and does do what He says He will do. His gift towards you is not a bargain that He enters with you. It is not a cooperative effort that He enters into with you. It is not a contract that He enters into with you. It is something He gives you that He does for you because He loves you. And He never wants you to feel like any part of this hinges on you being able to uphold your end of the bargain. It is not a bargain. It is a gift. Faith alone is how we access the gift of God, the grace of God. This morning, the simple gift of Jesus is on display before you. The cross is before you. This cross is to you a gift extended. A promise extended. The question of faith is before you. Do you trust the God who put Himself on the cross to do all that He promised He would do? Leave aside your 100,000 other questions in all the ways that you may feel unworthy or uncertain, this is the question that matters. Do you trust Him? And if the answer is yes, then you are free. And if the answer is no, then you are living under the weight that plagued Martin Luther this continuing paradigm whereby you must continue to be good enough and strong enough and try to clamber back into the good graces of God. This, this promise will remain extended to you. When you want to leave aside all your scrabbling hard up the rocky faces of moral achievement, this promise will be extended towards you still. Will you trust Him to do for you 
what you could not do for yourself? Will you have confidence in Him to give you this gift? Would you pray, pray with me? <clears throat> Lord Jesus, we thank You that You have given us all that is necessary, that You've done all that is necessary for us, Your people. God, we, we confess that there are so many ways that we are like the man in the Gospels pleading for healing for his child and saying we believe and help our unbelief. Help us not to be deceived. Deceived that the nature of our faith, the, the acceptable nature of our faith is all about us and what we can muster or what we can know. Help us to see that our faith is about trusting you. Jesus, I pray that you would, you would grow confidence about you in us. That we inside of us would somehow be able to distill all this down to that one question. Do we trust Jesus to do all that you promised? And God, we pray that you'd help us to grow in faithfulness. That we would live as people who have answered yes to that question. God, help us not to confuse faithfulness with faith. To think that the second comes before the first. God, we thank you for the gift, the pure gift that is salvation. Help us always and only to be humbled and grateful and never to think that you invite a trade with us. We thank you that you are a generous, gift-giving God. Your generosity outstrips our faithlessness and we are so thankful. Make much of yourself, Lord Jesus, and set us free in you. Amen. If you would stand and worship